0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, state lawmakers are considering a bill that would fund tutoring for students to make up learning losses from the past year. And though the bill has bipartisan support, there's still a lot we don't know about the academic impact of the pandemic.
1: It's really hard to look across the state right now to see how big these learning gaps are. We'll
0: have more on that just ahead, plus a look at a bill in Montana that would strip state protections for grizzly bears. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. In the three weeks following the shooting in a Boulder grocery store that killed 10, many Coloradans are asking the question, how do we prevent these incidents? For some lawmakers, the answer is legislative. Colorado Edition's Erin O'Toole spoke with KUNC reporter Lee Patterson about what might be proposed this session and how gun politics have unfolded after past mass shootings.
2: So Colorado has unfortunately been home to several high-profile mass shootings, going back to the incident at Columbine High School, where 13 were killed. How have legislators reacted to these types of events in the past? Well,
3: in the aftermath of that shooting, which actually happened almost exactly 22 years ago, there was some activism around something called closing the gun show loophole. And that means if you buy a gun at a gun show, you have to get a background check to do so. The Columbine shooters had a friend buy their guns for them at a little local gun show, so that's why it's an issue that came up. Anyway, very little progress was made at the State House on this issue. Tom Mauser, whose son was killed in the shooting, along with other activists, did manage to get an amendment on the ballot that November, which required background checks at gun shows. Here's Tom speaking on election night. What a sweet night. That measure passed with 70% of the vote. And
4: what a sweet victory.
3: Now, the bigger push, though, came after the Aurora theater shooting in 2012, uh, where 12 people were killed. Many, many were injured. In the aftermath, there was major momentum behind gun control. And of course, it was extremely controversial, and it was a hard-fought effort. But lawmakers here did pass a package of bills, including a ban on large-capacity magazines and a universal background check requirement. It's not surprising that gun groups and gun owners were not happy, particularly the local group, Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. They mounted a recall effort against two Democrats who did end up losing their seats. Those laws, however, are still in place. There have been legal challenges and legislation to repeal um, those laws, but they are still in place these days.
2: We know that the vast majority of gun deaths here in Colorado are made up of other types of gun violence. These are things like homicides, domestic violence situations, accidents, police encounters, the kind of stuff that's always happening in communities. And then, of course, suicides, which are the most common type of gun violence here by far. Has there been legislative reaction to gun violence more generally speaking and not just mass shootings?
3: Yeah, you know, to a degree, Colorado's extremist protection order law is a good example of that. It allows guns to be removed from people in crisis and a couple years ago when it was under discussion at the state house, it was framed in part as a suicide prevention tool, but the bill actually was drafted in direct reaction to the killing of a sheriff's deputy a couple years ago during a shootout with a man who was known to be mentally ill and was very very likely in the midst of a mental health crisis. This session there are two major gun-related bills one requiring guns to be securely stored to you know, prevent uh, kids from having accidents, for example, and another that would require gun owners to report when their gun is stolen. And the idea with that one would be to reduce the number of stolen guns in circulation. Both of these bills have passed in both the House and Senate and are now heading to the governor's desk. All of those pieces of legislation do address aspects of gun violence that are not directly
2: related to mass shooting events. Well, let's talk about some of the gun measures that have been introduced and failed.
3: Well, Colorado's extreme risk protection order law, which I just mentioned, failed the first time it was introduced in 2018. It did have some bipartisan support, but Senate Republicans ultimately rejected it. Many in law enforcement were against it. Um, Same with gun advocacy groups, of course, and some gun owners. But the following year, the bill did get through and is now law here. On the other side, so far this session, Republicans have introduced a handful of bills that would have loosened restrictions on guns, um, repealing Colorado's ban on high-capacity magazines, allowing concealed handguns on school property, as well as a background check exemption for people who already have a concealed carry permit. All of those measures have failed. Now, at the local level, the city of Boulder actually had a ban on assault style weapons in place until just before the shooting there that month. A judge actually blocked that ban. Uh, The reason was that under Colorado law, local officials aren't allowed to make their own rules on guns.
2: Right. Now at the state level, those types of weapons are currently allowed. But since the shooting in Boulder, there is now talk about banning them. Where is that proposal?
3: Well, there's no bill yet. And the Boulder lawmakers who have expressed interest in a ban on assault style weapons haven't put a specific timetable on any, any legislation aside from you know weeks, not months. At a recent press conference, KUNC's Scott Franz asked Senator Steve Fenberg about the status of potential legislation. Fenberg said they're basically still talking it through with other lawmakers and with policy experts.
0: We're still working through it. I mean, this is something that um, we don't want to rush into, but we want to do thoughtfully and make sure that whatever we do, if we if we introduce additional legislation, that they're not just to make us feel like we responded to a tragedy, but actually can make a difference um, and have uh, a meaningful impact in, in reducing future tragedies.
3: Now, it's worth noting that recently, Governor Polis wouldn't give a clear answer on whether or not he even supports a ban on assault-style weapons. And lawmakers right now are working on passing a $34 billion budget. So that is likely influencing the timing on other things, like a possible assault weapons ban.
2: Have Republicans put forward any solutions? Some Senate Republicans
3: are interested in pursuing something on mental health Their spokesperson says this would likely be in the form of budget amendments to direct funding towards mental health programs. But he wasn't able to give me any more detail than that. If and when there are any gun bills introduced by the Democrats, I think whether or not that legislation actually gets through will likely come down to how a handful of moderate Democrats choose to vote.
2: Well, we know this is an ongoing story and we'll keep following it. Thanks so much for your reporting, Lee. You are welcome. Many
0: Colorado students are falling behind in classes due to pandemic-related disruptions. To help them get back on track, lawmakers are considering a bipartisan bill to fund high-impact tutoring programs at districts across the state. Here to tell us more about the bill and how this kind of intensive tutoring works is reporter Erica Brunland. She's with the Colorado Sun. Erica, thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be here, Henry.
0: So I want to talk first about how students have been impacted by the pandemic. Obviously, a difficult year, Many schools offered remote classes for some or all of the year, and then all implemented major precautions for in-person instruction. What do we know so far about how students were impacted academically?
1: I think that's such a good question, Henry. And candidly, it's one that I am still asking. I think anecdotally, we're hearing a lot from parents, from students, from educators, from education advocacy organizations that students really have been impacted severely by the pandemic and that they've lost a lot of academic ground that they would have otherwise gained had we not experienced a pandemic. But I think it's really hard right now to quantify just how significant these learning gaps are from a state level, because we don't yet have a state picture. We haven't yet conducted CMS testing. We won't have a clear picture of results from CMS until the fall. So it's really hard to look across the state right now to see how big these learning gaps are. But again, what we're hearing anecdotally is that kids have just been so disrupted by the pandemic. Many of them have had to continually shuffle between in-person learning, remote learning, hybrid learning throughout the school year. A lot of them are suffering severely with mental health issues that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. A lot of them, especially out in rural areas, have struggled to access technology that has just become incredibly crucial for their education during the pandemic. So overall, anecdotally, we know that there has been a lot of learning loss, but just how significant that learning loss has been, we have yet to know. And I think we'll know more about that toward the end of the school year and certainly by next fall.
0: So even without this hard data on the academic impact, lawmakers are obviously concerned enough to bring forward this bill that would create high-impact tutoring programs. First, tell us about that. What is high-impact tutoring?
1: Yeah, so high impact tutoring is also known as high dosage tutoring. And it's this unique approach to tutoring that occurs during the school day and pairs a student with one distinct tutor throughout the entire academic semester or school year. They're meeting with that tutor and potentially a small group of students throughout the week, at least three times a week, again, during the school day so that They're there already at school. It's not before or after school. And their tutor can really, really get to know them and get to know their needs on a much deeper level. I talked to one of the co-founders of Saga Education, which is a nonprofit organization out of Massachusetts. And this co-founder, Antonio Gutierrez, talked about how high-impact tutoring Really has this relationship component, and that the relationship is a key part of helping students thrive academically. And Antonio himself went through high impact tutoring when he was a student at a charter school called Match Education in Boston. and he talked about how he had been struggling academically and how having a relationship with a tutor and having someone to really push him and show him his potential got him through and really helped him excel in his education. And so that's what his organization is now out to do. And I think tutoring can be so effective in many forms, but really what is most important here is that you have someone who is consistent and reliable working with these students, getting to know them where they struggle most, what they need help with and just helping consistently work with them throughout the semester or the school year to keep them on track and to just kind of keep them, Uh, motivated and pushing forward. And so working in small groups, one on one with these tutors is really key to the success here.
0: That kind of tutoring sounds expensive, though I understand that lawmakers behind the bill so far have committed at least $5 million, money that would come from the $800 million state coronavirus stimulus package. Is $5 million enough to help all of the Colorado students who might need this tutoring?
1: part of the issue here is that we don't yet have a sense of how many students would actually need this tutoring or would benefit from this tutoring. So there's this whole question of how many students are actually in need of this tutoring, which again, we just don't have an idea of that. And I don't know that we'll have a firm picture of that until the end of the school year or the fall even. But money is really a huge issue at the heart of this bill right now. As you said, lawmakers have committed $5 million from the state's $800 million stimulus package, but Representative Carrie Tipper, who is part of a bipartisan set of sponsors behind this bill, really cited that as a drop in the bucket for what's needed. She told me that tutoring, high-impact tutoring, can range from a few thousand dollars a student, $3,000 a student, down to a few hundred dollars a student, depending on how it's implemented. So it's hard to know how many students $5 million could serve because there are just so many variables that are up in the air right now. But she said that the $5 million simply will not be enough. And if this bill does move forward into law, she sees this money evaporating within a matter of months. So she's really hoping that the state will spend some of its federal stimulus dollars on this high impact tutoring. She told me that the state receives federal stimulus dollars and many of those dollars, the state can decide itself how it wants to use so long as it has permission from the state board. And so she's really hoping that the state will be able to add some funding to this initiative because she recognizes that $5 million is simply going to be inadequate to fill the need across the state.
0: Before we let you go, where is the bill at now and where does it go from here?
1: So on Thursday, the House Education Committee met and discussed this bill. Representative Tipper really reiterated how much of a bipartisan effort this has been. We have both Republicans and Democrats who are very much behind this bill. We also have a lot of education advocacy organizations who are behind this across the spectrum from Ready Colorado to Democrats for Education Reform to the state's teachers union. So we have just so much momentum behind this bill and it passed unanimously on Thursday. And so now it heads to appropriations. And so really just the big question at this point is whether it will get all the way to the finish line and whether we'll be able to see additional dollars from the Colorado Department of Education added to this effort.
0: Erica Brunlin covers education for the Colorado Sun. You can find a link to her reporting on this bill at her website, KUNC.org. Erica, thanks as always for talking with us. Thank you, Henry. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. For many, the year 2020 is synonymous with hardship restaurants closed, events were canceled, and we all had to face a global pandemic. All of these things and more culminated in a damaged economy, with many thousands of Coloradans still out of work. And while financial burdens mount almost across the board, for a select few Coloradans, the pandemic didn't translate into a financial hit, but a financial gain. According to a recent article in the Denver Post, Colorado billionaires are nearly $10 billion richer than they were a year ago. Colorado Edition's Erin O'Toole spoke with the author of that article, Justin Wingertner, a political reporter for the Denver Post.
2: So you reported that Colorado billionaires are nearly $10 billion richer since the pandemic. How did they manage to do this in a year where pretty much everyone else either stayed flat or lost money?
4: Yeah, that's kind of a big question. And um for the most part, the answer is the stock market, where most of the ultra-wealthy have their wealth. And stock market has done pretty well between March of last year and March of this year. It took a brief hit last spring in March and April, but has since done uh, very well. And for people who draw most of their money from
2: that, um, they're doing just fine. Who exactly are these Colorado billionaires? What industries are they a part of that have allowed them to be so successful, kind of regardless of what's going on in the rest of the world? They're uh, an
4: interesting bunch. It's usually considered eight people. Uh, it fluctuates from time to time. But they're led by Charlie Urgen, who is uh, the co-founder of Dish Network and also EchoStar. He is now Colorado's richest person. He uh, nearly doubled his wealth between March of last year and March of this year from about $5.4 billion to about $10.7 billion, according to Forbes. Uh, Philip Anschutz is number two. He's long been the top billionaire in Colorado. Pat Stryker, Colorado's richest woman, medical technology heiress. And Gary Magnus is a, a media heir. So it's a wide range of people. Tech and media are common among the the Colorado billionaires, but it, it can be a diverse group in some ways.
2: Well, I want to compare this to the Great Recession in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, which saw the top one percent take a big hit. What's the difference here between the economic downturn of, of those years and and twenty twenty?
4: It's a really good question, Aaron. It's a really important point to make here is that. This is very different than your typical economic downturn. I think people generally understand that. This was a very strange cliff, and we saw unemployment rates shoot up in ways that we had never seen. In some cases, drawing comparisons to the Great Depression, of course, it did not hit every economic sector. If you think of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, which continued for years after that, it began in the financial sector. And so naturally, that was the first industry hit hard. And billionaires and millionaires felt that immediately and then actually kind of trickled down to the rest of us in in a lot of ways. So this is very different in which, fast forward to last year, the past 12, 13 months, we haven't seen that. The financial market, the financial sector has not been hit for the most part. It's really the restaurant workers, the hotel workers, hospitality that have been hit hard who tend to populate lower rungs of the economic ladder.
2: Did anyone see this coming? Is the fact that pretty much all of Colorado's billionaires made more money, surprising.
4: It is. You know, I talked with economists who studied billionaire wealth and, and during the Great Recession and other past economic downturns. And this is very different. Um, and I don't know that anyone predicted exactly how this would unfold, where you have entire industries shut down overnight. I mean, just devastating unemployment within certain industries. But then you have whole other industries entirely untouched. And as a result, you have rungs of the economic ladder that are untouched. You think of the major economic downturns of the 20th century, that did not happen. Everyone took a hit. Now, granted, different people were hit harder, but generally, it affected just about everybody.
2: In your article, you wrote that the pandemic crystallized how billionaires have delinked from the rest of the economy. I love that term, delinked. Can you talk about what that means?
4: Yeah, it means some of what we've, we've discussed already, which is the difference between the stock market and the real economy. You hear sometimes the phrase, the stock market is not the economy. And I think that last year really brought that to the forefront. The real economy, what we think of as people's wages, salaries, employment levels, it's been a bad year. If you look at the stock market, it's been a good year. Generally, we expect that if the economy is headed downward, the stock market is headed downward. Generally, these are somewhat links. And this past year has felt a a total delinking.
2: What do you think we can learn from this overall as the world starts to open up a bit more, the engine of that real economy starts to fire back up? Can we expect to see more of an evening out of wealth, or do you anticipate the the upper echelons will continue to remain high on this untouchable branch?
4: If the last year is taught us anything, things are very unpredictable, and I would hesitate to try to predict what's going to happen next. I would say, though, in terms of what we learn from this, I think in situations like this, where you have billionaires doubling their wealth in some cases during an otherwise tough economic year, there is some risk the social fabric. You'll recall last spring when there was much talk of national unity and understanding that we were all about to enter into a difficult time, but we would band together and get through it. But as one economist put it to me, if you're a grocery store worker who got sick from COVID because you're an essential worker or you're a nurse, extra shifts to keep your hospital from overcrowding. And you notice someone else has made a billion dollars from the stock market during this supposedly tough year. You might rethink the important work you're doing, and we obviously don't want that to happen. When you see massive wealth gap, I think there's some risk in that.
2: Justin Wingerder covers politics for the Denver Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having
4: me. Grizzly
0: bear populations in the Mountain West have rebounded since being listed as an endangered species about 50 years ago. To some, this means that grizzlies are no longer endangered. And now a group of Republican senators has proposed legislation to strip federal protections. And in Montana, a bill has been proposed that loosens state protections. But as Dante Philpola ankney reports for KUNC, Montana's bill could have an unintended consequence.
5: Tom Kuka has been ranching on the Blackfeet Reservation for nearly 30 years. His ranch sits about 20 miles east of the Rocky Mountain front, where jagged peaks meet sprawling prairie. And Kuka, like many on the front, unwillingly shares his ranch with grizzly bears.
1: You just got to be aware all the time. I've run into sows and cubs, but um, they've seen me first, I guess. But, you know, one day
3: it might not be that way, I guess.
5: Kuka worries for the safety of himself, his family, and his livelihood. He said he loses about 15 calves every year to grizzlies a loss worth twelve to $15,000. Ranchers can be compensated for their killed livestock, but only if they can prove the cause of death is a grizzly. Of the 15 calves killed, Kuka says, he typically finds only two or three carcasses. Last year, he found only one.
1: They eat the calf up so bad that you never do find
5: it. There were an estimated seven to 800 grizzlies in the lower 48 when the bear was listed as endangered in 1975. Now, there are almost twice that. And more than 1,000 of those grizzlies live in northwest Montana, near Couga. He has joined a growing group of ranchers, arguing that something needs to be done.
1: It'd be great to hunt them, I guess, just to get the fear back into them. Uh,
3: There's no fear in the bear at all anymore.
5: In Montana's state Senate chamber, Republican Senator Bruce Gillespie has authored a bill that would loosen regulations around killing grizzlies in Montana. It's a message that's finding an audience during Montana's ongoing legislative session.
4: They're a dangerous animal. They're an apex predator.
5: It is already legal in Montana to kill a grizzly in self-defense or if the bear is in the act of killing livestock. This bill would allow a grizzly to be harmed or killed if a bear even threatens. So
4: we need a bill to defend our lives, livestock, and our livelihood. Our, our, our friends, our kids, our parents, whatever. Uh, you know, this thing is totally idiotic the way, it, the way it is right now.
5: Right now, under the Endangered Species Act, Grizzlies can't be harmed or killed, regardless of what Montana says, because federal law supersedes state law. Gillespie knows that. But he says his bill, which is making its way through the Montana state legislature, is more of a message to federal officials.
4: Basically, it's put pressure on them and uh, said, hey, you know, you guys back there D.C., wake up. Um... You know, you're living where you're nice and safe, but we're not.
5: Chris Servine doesn't think the bill will send that intended message at the Capitol.
1: Absolutely not. It would have the opposite effect.
5: And Servine would know. For 35 years, he led the grizzly bear recovery effort for the Fish and Wildlife Service. For the bear to be delisted, Servine says, adequate state measures have to be in place to protect them. And if that bill is passed...
1: It would prevent the consideration of delisting by the Fish and Wildlife Service because the state would no longer have the ability to regulate human-caused mortalities to grizzly bears.
5: Meaning federal efforts to delist grizzlies, like the long-shot legislation just proposed in Congress, would be dead on arrival. Andrea Zaccardi is a senior attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity. She says the bill could pose another risk.
2: Montana's bill is extremely dangerous for Montana's citizens.
5: It sends a mixed message, she says.
2: So they might not, for example, understand that... While it's decriminalized to kill a grizzly bear in Montana, they could still be federally prosecuted.
5: Zucardi agrees that grizzlies have made a tremendous recovery, but she believes they are not quite healthy enough to hunt. And numerous attempts to take the bear off the endangered species list in the past have all been overturned in court. Reporting from Missoula County, I'm Dante Fopla ankney KUNC
0: is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. And that's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. We'll be back tomorrow with more Colorado Edition from KUNC.